Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was released on Netflix this year. And The Social Network, which came out a decade ago. Yes, humble listener, a decade ago in 2010. And the connection being that they are both written by Aaron Sorkin. The great Aaron Sorkin. He's been around for a while. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to William. William, give us a bit of a summary of one of our films. Sure, Jeremy. So Aaron Sorkin wrote and directed The Trial in the Chicago 7. Uh, this has been a, a work long coming. Um, I think Spielberg was supposed to direct back in the mid-2000s. But it is, of course, about the Chicago 7 and the, the kangaroo court that happened on, I guess it was from 1968 to 1970, uh, where a bunch of very left-leaning activists were arrested and trialed for their responsible actions, quote-unquote, during the riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. A lot of things go awry, there's jokes, there's people being beat up by police. Um, it's all very, very, I guess, current in a way, um, which I guess is also the point of the movie. Thank you. And Sarah, give us a bit of an overview of our other film. So 2010's The Social Network was directed by David Fincher, but as we say, written by the great Aaron Sorkin. Now, I don't know how many of us are on social networks or are very familiar with this, but it has to do with the internet, which has to do with computers. And back in 2010, um, when David Fincher made this movie, The Social Network, it's basically about the uh, origins of Facebook stars Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg, um, who, uh, we, and we watch this fantastic origin story, which we have to say has been fictionalized in quite a lot of ways, but you don't care because you feel that you are getting the essence of what Mark Zuckerberg was and is like, and, and the, the genesis of Facebook uh, to become the behemoth that is ruining our lives as we speak. Um, so basically, a Facebook came out. Uh, I went on in two thousand seven. So for thirteen years, it's been ruining my life, and here we are, uh, <laughs> overturning democracy since two thousand and whenever it was. So anyway, um, starring Jesse Eisenberg, wonderful supporting actors: Andrew Garfield, Rooney Mara, Justin Timberlake, uh, and we'll talk a bit more about that shortly. Brilliant, thank you. And it's fair to say that we will be spoilering both films, so if you haven't seen either film, I would suggest pausing this episode and returning to it at a later date. Great, look, I want to start with, with, the, with the social network because your comments about Facebook ruining our lives, uh, you know, there's an irony in social media in that it is both an incredible tool of connection, but equally it's, it's got a great, great many um, anecdotal connections around people feeling stressed or anxious or it's it's raising the what is it like grass is greener on the other side kind of anxieties mm -hmm. um but but you know th those were very much part of the discussion of the of facebook when that film came out what has since transpired i think would make that film quite difficult to release which is the influence of facebook on real political 
Vince. Mm. Um, the the court case, the, the new court case against <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook around how they treat information and about their duty of care to misinformation and how people are able to share that through their servers. So I don't think you would be able to make the social network now uh, in the same way without having a very clear sense of how you're speaking to some of the far more darker implications mm. of social social media that I don't, I don't think any of us, I definitely did not see any of that coming. And the interesting thing about the social network as a film, of course, is it's not really the biography of Facebook, although it kind of is, but it's very, very much about the characters involved. And I think it's worth uh, mentioning, obviously, that um, Aaron Sorkin is a, a point of commonality between these two films, but moreover, his, his screenplays are about real-life events uh, that involve litigation and, um, admittedly, in one you are in an actual courtroom in the Chicago 7 and you are in boardrooms uh, going through, um, uh, basically, people suing one another. So it's ever so slightly different, although they're, they're giving evidence and that sort of thing. So you get that witty cross-examination. But they're both about real-life things that happened between people around an event or around, a, um, in this case, the, the creation of, of this multi-billion dollar business. So, mm. Mm. It's interesting what you say about the materials since uh, Social Network was released. Um, I, I know a lot of times I've read Aaron Sorkin or people related to the movie talk about making a sequel which would be fascinating mm. because, my goodness, the world has turned since 2010. Also, I don't know about you guys, but coming into Social Network with the knowledge of what happened in the last 10 years, I think it's made the movie even better because the movie, I mean, I know, I know for a fact that when I watched it back, you know, in 2010, it was, it was incredible. It was exciting. There was so much... So much life in the movie. Mm. Um, where I mean, most of it, yes, is about people either behind computers just typing away or about people shouting at each other about money or power or class. But, I mean, the, the genesis of something so extraordinary, I, I feel the energy is just captured so beautifully in the movie throughout. Mm. And we'll talk about the ways in, in which it you know, is done. But, I mean, looking from a 2020 point of view, this is, this is like the origin story of, of a monster, mm. right? Uh, whether the monster's Mark Zuckerberg or the monster's Facebook, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, at, at a certain point, they're basically one and the same. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a villain protagonist, right? I, I know he is kind of a villain, or he is a villain protagonist, even without all of that context, because he's an awful, awful human being. But looking ahead into what happened later, it's like, okay... This movie actually is prescient in a lot of ways and is really, really scary in many other more. That is such an excellent point. And it's so right to look back to 2010 when we all watched it contemporaneously when it came out. You're so right. So for me, as I say, I went on Facebook in 2007 and it was a wonderful social networking tool. And it was a repository for photos and a what are you feeling? And do you remember back you can, in you the early poke days? Yeah. And super poke. And, yeah. and also they kind, of, um, they kind of prescribed how you did your status update because it said Sarah Watt is... And then you had to say, feeling happy because university is over or whatever it might be. So the interesting thing is, back then, yes, the film posited that this kind of, this, this, this weedy 
um, geeky guy who had a, a, a grudge against a um, fictitious, actually, girlfriend, then ex-girlfriend, created this, it's interesting you mentioned class, this, um, this social network that was actually all about people at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, uh, being cool um, and, and having that high status kind of connection with other cool high status people. By 2010, we're in it, we're living, so we're living Facebook, and it feels like a good time. Now, you're so right. We're still living Facebook. We see all the damage that it's done. And to me, you're right about the prescience, because also the Mark Zuckerberg character in Social Network is painted like a bit of a monster, albeit sort of, um, sort of the, the plant, if you will, from Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Audrey <laughs> 2, before, before he has grown into this massive kind of like, you know, evil dude. Um, and now we can look back and go, yeah, actually, this is a bad scene. <laughs> I love that. I love that connection. I love the idea of a sequel. That is very exciting. And I would never, you, you know, it's not a usual situation for a, a biographical film to mm. have a sequel. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's definitely a lot has happened. I love the way that Sorkin is able to center a film around a, a very clear character arc and mm. journey. And I love, I mean, people criticize the film for this and even Zuckerberg said, I didn't create Facebook so that I could get back at my ex-girlfriend. Of course he didn't. But it, it works as a, as a piece. And the, the destruction of his best friendship with um, and Andrew Garfield's character and and the kind of longing to be as prestige and status. Yeah, to be the just, best. To be to create something huge and life changing and be the guy who did that. Mm. Because you're because you're a bit of a nothing, although you're a very clever nothing, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I loved that in um uh, the trial of, of of the Chicago Seven, another brilliant script. Uh, I've got lots to say about the actual film, but in terms of the script, another brilliant script. Uh, in the way that it focused on like you didn't even know that the centre of that film was the relationship between Eddie Redmayne and um, Sasha Baron Cohen's characters. Mm-hmm. But such a carefully put together arc in that film that yeah. comes to, to fruition at the end. Also fictitious, but interestingly so. Yeah, and it gives us a, such an in into that world. And yeah. I loved it. I'm going to keep pushing back there on the Facebook as a monster. I'm not disagreeing with you in terms of its implications. But I think it's easy to overlook that it is a massive part of our lives. Mm. Where, I mean, I'm using it almost every moment of the day messaging people I'm sharing things it has opened the door in a lot of great ways Um, but I think with the recent court proceedings uh, around the elections Mm -hmm. and and Brexit and um, pushing of misinformation that's a a bigger discussion which is if you are hosting people's and people's sharing of information then you must be liable for that sharing, even though you are not directly responsible for it. And you have a duty of care about it. Mm. It's a complicated Mm. piece, right? Yeah. Um, it is, it is, a, it is a, an organism of, of moving parts. And also, look, let's be honest, it isn't, um, it's not HAL in 2001. It isn't its own, it's not its own creature. It is the combination of the humans that use it, Yet. right? Uh, well, yeah, yes. all right, yeah. Yeah, true. Nice. Um, but interestingly... I've seen Black Mirror. I can see where this is going. <laughs> we know where this is going. Interestingly, when you think about the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, have you both watched that already? 
Can't, you can't bring yourself to? Oh my goodness. It is absolutely fascinating. And because it's a documentary, it's ostensibly true because you've got proper talking heads of people from Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on now living with enormous regret mm, about the true. way that what they've created has become. Mm. And it's really the mo- one of the most interesting parts to me is, is when we have this lovely face-to-face interview with the, one of the guys who invented the like button on Facebook. And he said... Paraphrasing, obviously, when we created this, we thought this would be a wonderful uh, instrument for people to show likes and appreciations to other people. We never foresaw that in years to come, it would be the mechanism by which young people feel awful about themselves because they don't have enough likes or they're not getting likes or they're looking at how many likes other people get. Mm. And it's interesting to think about that sort of foreseeability issue. So to be fair, even to Mark Zuckerberg, and, you know, I do have a few issues with its being a uh, ostensibly a network for Ponzi people to connect with other Ponzi people. And that really hit me more on this viewing of the social network than in prior times. But, um, but really it was about, hey, here's an opportunity for people to connect at university. Uh, and we want to see who's dating who. And we want to see if, if we can go out with them. And all of that is totally fine. I think it's interesting, because mm. eh? when I first started using Facebook in 2007, I was at university, and I remember it being this... It was exciting, and it was, yeah. it was... It didn't feel sinister. And there was this joy of being at a party and then seeing the photos of that party that you were in posted in, and mm. the next day. And I was like, oh my gosh, usually you would never see these mm. photos. And, mm-hmm. And there was the little games and the little sharing, and it was it was very insular. I think one of the key developments, and we, we kind of jokingly talk about hell, but H A L. Oh, um, I thought you meant hell. hell. <laughs> I thought we got there quickly uh, from two thousand one. <laughs> but it is AI, artificial intelligence, and yeah. that Silicon Valley. It's a big focus of, of their work is mm-hmm. around algorithms, algorithms. And artificial intelligence. And I think I was talking yesterday to my my dad and my nephew about this. You know, back in the back in the day, you know, ten years ago, on YouTube, you would you would have a video would go viral, and there would be kind of one page that everybody would typically see of of the most watched videos, yeah. and so it would help escalate the the vir- virality. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, of those videos, but now with the algorithms, we're becoming more and more siloed, mm. and so you're only seeing the things that the algorithm deems is relevant to you, yeah. which mm-hmm. is a powerful piece of of technology. Yeah, but. But it's also incredibly scary. And I, I, again, to pivot again to another point, I've had to sort of remove myself from Facebook this year because I've had loved ones and people I care about posting really concerning conspiracy theories and really extreme views about politics that I think if we were in person, it would be a much more Mm. balanced discussion. Mm -hmm. We would be able to maintain each other's humanity a lot better. Mm. But when it's really scary stuff being posted because they're clearly watching and seeing things in their sphere... yeah. It's upsetting. Mm. I don't really know what to do with some of that information. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for listening to this. Uh, I brought I mean, it straight down into the into the depths of despair. No, it, well, it, well, it is a, it is a bit like the um the other morning. I thought, having just rewatched Social Network, I thought, you know what? I'm I am actually going to come off this time. I'm actually going to withdraw completely. <laughs> and then my husband said, "Well, bear in mind that you use Messenger," and I went, "Wow." Oh. Because Messenger is super useful because you can send photos and videos and things yeah. through it. And it's super easier. And not everyone I know is doing WhatsApp and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, okay, then maybe all I'll do is um, deactivate, mm-hmm. which I've done before. 
for a limited time only. But um, <laughs> but but even doing that, okay. So that all that means is I'm not engaging on Facebook. Well, who cares? Facebook's still owning all of my photos and all of my data and everything. Yeah. So it's really hard. <laughs> It's I ridiculous, love, I love, isn't it? I love the irony of people that post about conspiracy theories around 5G and things. Taking over, The government's taking over our lives and they're posting about it on Facebook. Yeah. Like you are literally giving your life to this <laughs> great beast. Yeah. Of a, Every time someone posts about Facebook and Google um, and, and then also in the same breath talks about like, ooh, Huawei is going to take all our stuff. It's like... I, I, do you know what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> do you know how the world works right now? Yeah. Anyway, guys, Aaron Sorkin. Yes, oh, that's right. There's a film. In that's it. right. Yeah. That's right. And moreover, there's a screenplay writer. Yeah. So it's worth telling listeners who probably already know this, of course, that Aaron Sorkin has been writing wonderful screenplays for absolutely yonks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved his work on The West Wing. It made me want to go into politics because, of course, he because I was like, because that's clearly exactly what it's like. And so, therefore, maybe I can get you an internship wanna, at the White walk, House. You just want to walk down a hallway yeah. and, talk, and talk at the and same talk. time with Bradley Whitford. And it makes sense. And I was like, this is amazing. So that was wonderful. Um, and also, back in the day, guys, and this probably I did see at the time before you were both old enough to, was A, a Few Good Men. Mm-hmm. One of Tom Cruise's most wonderful moments, one of Jack Nicholson's least annoying moments. I'm not a massive <laughs> Nicholson fan, TBH. Demi Moore was great in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is an exciting film. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. You know, we were saying that to each other the whole time. Uh, and that, of course, is a, a, a courtroom drama that's indicative of Sorkin's um, manipulations because actually, so I went into law I actually trained as a lawyer because of films like A Few Good Men, because I thought, this is exciting, and that's what I want to do. I want to defend people, and I want the the come thrust of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. It's super dry, super slow. In New Zealand, you do not walk around the courtroom. You do not approach the witness. You do not approach the jury. Um... And you're standing, and it's very much more staid, as you'll see if you watch clips on One Network News and whatnot. But 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 can you say things like you you want the truth, you can't handle the truth? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't get that far. But I just remember feeling like, oh, it's not like it is in the movies. And I blame Aaron Sorkin, among others, for that sort of thing. But boy, he knows how to make the trial of the Chicago Seven mm-hmm. a, a, a a zingy. Exciting, and it's it's all through dialogue. Mm. I think the Decision Network is it is very different. Even though I think the tones feel similar, but just because one is a Fincher movie and one is a Sorkin movie, mm. um, Decision Network has so much more going on with the visuals and the music and mm. everything else. Whereas Trial of the Chicago Seven is really really heavily just centered upon its dialogue and mm. its interplays. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that one step further. I think that the, the trial of Chicago 7, like I said, brilliant script. Terrible direction. It's mm. just... It, well, not terrible. It's, it's, it's on the screen. Yeah, right? it's passable. But there's no, there is no crafting. It feels exactly like a writer has just taken their script and mm. put it on screen. <laughs> a play. There's yeah. a play. There's like the, I talked briefly this year about this the other day. The other day um, in the office the riot scenes which should be the the action sequences yeah. the musical moments the 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 parts of the film the yacht sequence and the social network mm-hmm. the you know all of the montages in the social network those enjoyable mm. pulsating 
that's what the riots should be. They should feel terrifying and, mm. and fraught. But they just fall flat. And I think it's because he's probably written and then the riot <laughs> which so happens in scripts. And then it yeah. takes a good director and a stunt coordinator and a cinematographer to design and craft that sequence with the actors. Yeah. And there's just none of that. Specifically, there's one scene I feel very strongly about, which is just what you bring up. It's when the, um, the, the main, our main group of heroes, yeah. uh, quote-unquote, um, are being cornered outside that, that bar. Yes. And they, um, I think it's um, uh, Abby Hoffman who's explaining during stand-up, like inside the bar were the, you know, the mm. politicians and this and that. And then it just, it's staged so flatly. Mm. Um, one of the women looks over and is like, what, what, what is that? Yeah. And then they the come pacing, through the class. The pacing's not great, It, it should have been this crescendo and, and yeah. instead it just, I don't know, it kind of, Fizzles it when it shouldn't? It is exactly a damp squib. You're right, because we know what's going to happen, and all we're doing is waiting for someone to be pushed through a glass yeah. window from her perspective, from her point of view. You're so right. And I think that... I, but it's interesting that you, you make the point, William, that what Sorkin, I think, does quite well is he takes something that could be quite dry, which is a court case, mm-hmm. and he juxtaposes those scenes of explanation. So instead of hearing evidence from the witness box, mm-hmm. which would have been super boring... We get a cross between dramatizations of what happened, which is your riot scene that wasn't very dynamic, and um, Real Abby footage. Hoffman's Uh-oh. oh, and Abby, Abby Hoffman recounting it in the stand-up club, mm-hmm. and so sort of going from A to B to C to A to B yeah. to C, and then the, the brief snippets of real footage from you know the actual riot. So he attempts, I think, to keep yeah. it quite dynamic in that way, mm-hmm. and manages because it's great when Abby Hoffman in the stand-up club is 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 telling us what happened. It's much more dynamic than anybody on the witness box mm. could have said it, but it's effectively the same information. And then he said this, and he said his head is bleeding, and he said the bl- our blood will pour, or blah blah blah. But you that's know. great writing. Yeah, like that is a great script. And and like I agree with you, that moment with the window is just such a disappointment. There are three key moments like that that mm. feel like they should be the centerpieces of those those acts mm-hmm. uh, and I think that he's t- he's so used to writing great scripts yes. that he's able to give that over to a director yes um, and I feel the same with Molly's Game Molly's Game was yeah. a really yeah. great script that just was such a boring that didn't quite work yeah it's a, yeah. I think I remember giving Molly's Game four stars because I appreciated the performances and I loved the story and I was really engaged but you're right it didn't quite get there it was like a high merit <laughs> which I always love doing it back to our teaching experience but yeah. hey it was like a high merit yeah it's great that you guys bring up Molly's Game because I feel like with both Molly's Game and Trial of the Chicago 7 it's the actors that really bring everything up. Right? Yes. Because the actors through, I mean, both movies, and especially in Trial of Chicago 7, of which there are many, many, you know, big name actors, mm. they're almost all amazing. I say almost because Reddy Red, uh, Eddie Redmayne's also in there. I don't think he does a very good job. But everyone else, I, I thought, is just top of their game. Yeah. And Sasha Baron Cohen in particular. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I wonder, his, his accent's wonky, but apart yeah. from that, everything else is incredible. I yeah. wonder how much of that, our, our admiration for him, is because we're used to him either being a buffoon or a buffoon. Um, I know he's done some serious stuff, but I never watched that The Spy or whatever it is. that um, He's got some, uh, on Netflix I think, there's some show about mm. him. I don't know if he's a Mossad spy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I haven't seen a whole lot of his drama. So when you see him in... 
Chicago 7, you're like, holy mackerel, yeah. I can take this guy seriously, even though he's miraculously playing a dramatic character who is a joker mm-hmm. because he's make cracking jokes the whole time, but you still believe in Abby Hoffman. It's an extraordinary performance, if you get what I mean. There's yeah, that real yeah. nuance to it. Yeah. yeah. I thought the cast was, was fantastic. Um, Yaya, um, yes. from, he's been Watchmen and uh, Aquaman. Aquaman and <laughs> he's brilliant. But I, and, I, and, the, and the race stuff really hit hard. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just horrific. I did feel like sort of it was just they'd forgotten about. Like, well, well, that's my question. Why do you think they... Because so much more happened with Bobby Seale during the actual riots and, and the, the trial. Um, I, I mean, reading through a lot of the, the stuff, he, he was stuck, clamped down gagged in that chair for three whole days mm. and that that stuff's horrifying but the I, I guess that's not really the thrust of the film like mm. th- there's a lot of things you know going through a lot of the histories after watching the film um it comes across as oh my gosh this could have been an amazing part of the movie but it's not there um, but as you say, I, I can imagine in, in the, well, later than the writer's room, they were yeah. probably going, oh, look, we'd love to keep it in, but it's it, but it isn't mm. part of the story. Because you're right, I was reading, um, after watching the film, reading up on the Chicago 8. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they're called the Chicago 8, but then, of course, they become the Chicago 7 when Bobby Seale is um, divide, you know, yeah. uh, and like, okay, mate, don't worry about it. You're not involved in this. Off you go. It does feel unsatisfying and wrong and but it's factual so i bet they had you know real dilemmas as to mm. how to deal with that I, I my thing was just it's just that there was no real reincorporation of it and that he he just he literally he just disappears, disappears from the movie from film. yeah and like i get that uh that he you know in real life that's that's effectively what happened in terms of him being removed from that trial but it was such a weighted part of the movie. Yeah. And, and also with gone. today's lens, politically, you do not get rid of your only black character who has been treated more appallingly than all of the others. Yeah. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So that's hard. When yeah. you're dealing with history, um, that's that's tricky and a bit uh, possibly misguided, probably. Yeah. I, and I can see like they're probably stuck in a rock and a hard place because if they removed it, then that would have been a far more, like you're saying, Sarah, a far more greater offence. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I I loved all the courtroom stuff. I think Frank Frank Langella was a brilliant <laughs> oh villain. Absolutely amazing. What a horrific person! And they just oh, and you're kind of not sure if he's actually going to be bad or not. Yeah. Initially, I was like, he's not being very good, but I'm not sure where this is going. And he just gets worse yeah. and worse. And he's legit bad. I looked him up after. Like I was wiki yeah. Wikipediaing everybody after down the rabbit hole. And yeah, down the rabbit hole always. And yeah. um, yeah. He got real life. Well, it says it in the end credits as well, doesn't it? But yes, eighty-five um, percent of a particular bar, bar of you know barristers yeah. and whatnot, said that he was not good at his job. And it's it was interesting for me to watch that. Watch a lot of what Frank Lang- Langella, Langella. I don't know, Langella, Jella. Mm. Probably. Okay. Gif or Jif? Langella. A lot of the moments. A lot of his moments made me viscerally angry yeah. and upset as a viewer. And that doesn't happen often, but it has happened. It happened so much um, in Sleepers that I... Do you remember the film Sleepers? No. About the abuse of boys in a boy's home? Oh, my mm. gosh. Very famous cast in its day. I remember 
pulsating wow. with with fury and upset about it. And I didn't quite get to that stage with Chicago 7, but there was so much injustice. I, it was absolutely staggering. And when you see it in a courtroom environment, which I, either by naivety or by um, longing, want to believe is the last bastion of a place that you can go and, and trust that justice will be served when you've got a judge being that prejudiced and that dismissive you just think well that's it the world the world's mm. over do you know what i mean i mean it sounds farcical but it's like having an idiot in the white house <laughs> you know i mean as if but uh, you know do you know what i mean though yeah like, totally this matters. I, I guess is, wasn't that the, um correct me please correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't that kind of the point of the whole chicago or the trial that the, the, the people, the activists, wanted to show the world how much of a kangaroo court this whole place was. Ah, yeah. And so th- that's why the, all the speaking up, the jokes, the dress up, like it was, it was treated farcically because it was. Right, right. That's part yeah. of the dynamic, though, in the movie is that the Eddie Redman character is believing of um, Sacha Baron Cohen's character, but he's mm-hmm. just a jokester. But somebody says to him, you, you know, you should, he's a very intelligent person. You mm-hmm. shouldn't just write him off. And equally... Equally, there's that moment of respect where he realizes that that Abby, what's his name, Abby Hoffman. Hoffman, Abby Hoffman's read all of Eddie Redmayne's character's yeah. essays mm. or, or articles, and that he realizes that he knows exactly what he's doing, that he's showing it up for what it is. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character knows that right from the start, mm. which is very endearing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had to say though, again, back to the direction. The music is so bad in this movie, and the actual music itself is fine, but it's the way they use it. Like, the opening, I called it Hairspray-style music, <laughs> as in Hairspray the musical, kind of um, over the montage. And then the final moment where Eddie Redmayne reads out the names of the fallen soldiers, mm-hmm. it's so corny. And it should be this wonderful moment of of swelling emotions, but it's... So badly. Can, can we can we talk about that ending and That's, the beginning? I, I actually quite enjoyed the beginning. It was like, okay, yeah, there's energy, there's there's pep in my step. Um, can I just can I just yes. ask? Can I just ask if I remember correctly, the music is all jolly jolly, but the footage is serious. Yes. So, uh, well, some of the footage is serious. So does it have that Jojo Rabbit esque kind of? I, I think we're it dealing wants with to. Something horrible. It, it wants to, right? Because right. it shows you know Vietnamese uh, a stop like actual footage of yes. Vietnamese villages being bombarded right. by napalm. And I found that gross, but yeah. I figured I was meant to. But yeah. I started off the film going, no, I don't think I'm going to like this. Um, so yes, that was awkward. Ending. Go. The ending is awful. <laughs> it's it is. I I really quite enjoyed the film throughout, uh, beginning included. Uh, again, like yeah, the staging is not super great, um, and I I just sorry you guys, I can't get over Eddie Redmayne putting on an American accent. It just sounds slightly off. Like <laughs> it's like he he's the guy from Fantastic Beasts. He he should uh, 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 speak like this. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I mean, all that aside. Really enjoyed the movie. It was really like wrapped up in the the courtroom scenes and and the Bobby Seal stuff and all that stuff. And then you get to the final fifteen minutes. And as you say, Jimmy, like the music swells. There's that, first of all, Abby Hoffman takes the stand, and he just he starts talking about platitudes and about you know this, this is what we're here for. He's super serious. And then Eddie Redmayne is, is the conscience of the film stands up, and apparently it's all fictitious. Where he reads the names of the fallen. People are giving him a standing ovation. The film ends on a freaking freeze frame. Mm. It it's felt so unearned, so corny, and mm. just 
the rest of the movie has not been building up to this. Do you know, I, I got, I was, this is ridiculous, but I was so anxious when he was reading the names out because I knew there were going to be 2,000 names. Uh, 4,000. 4,000 <laughs> names. And he started reading. And I thought, if he just goes, Jeremy Downing, William Chen, <laughs> then I'll be fine. But he didn't. He was like, Jeremy Downing, age 19, <laughs> lef- Lieutenant First Class, blah, blah, or something. I was like, we don't have time. And I felt the anxiety of being in the courtroom and being like, we've got to get through 4,000 of these. That's why so many people left in disgust. Like, wow. <laughs> like honestly, oh, I was like, time? this, no, no, just say then. It's as good, it's important, just say their names. Oh, 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 sorry, one more thing, which is, we we're talking about Frank Langella. But I have written down in my notes the old fart because I think that's what his character is. He's mm. just in the back going, "I shall have order!" Boom, 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 mm. boom with his gavel, and it, it reminded me so much of the um, the president of Harvard character from Social Network. Yes, um, and he's just written <laughs> with exactly the same brush. He's like, "Oh, you students and your computers!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We shall have order, order. Fantastic. So yeah. Uh. Yeah, the white, um, the the white male. Um, I want to say upper class, not necessarily. What would yeah. we call that echelon, though? You know, the people yeah. in, in power mm-hmm. who are immediately dismissive of <laughs> okay, the hippies yeah, yeah. and the the young people. I mean, Frank ja- Frank Langella, whose judge's name we don't remember. Um, the Hoffman. His name is also Hoffman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because they had that whole big debate. <laughs> let, let the record be known that we are not related. Um, you are. Oh, Dad. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> And Danny Strong. I didn't even know. Is it Danny Strong? Is it his name? Uh, Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong. Yes. Oh, from Succession. I didn't even yeah. Recognize, yeah. I recognized him. Absolutely I didn't wonderful. Connection. He was so good. Was yeah. so, all of them are so and, good. And I think it's it's such a tough character, right? Because it, it can so easily be, be like, oh, it's just a flower power caricature. Mm. Um, but there's real emotion and nuance in that performance. Mm. Well, let's talk about the social network. Because um, similar to having a Sasha Bar- uh, British uh, Sasha Baron Cohen playing an American... Andrew Garfield, British Andrew Garfield, I think is superb in the social oh, network. Yeah. And as far as I can, my non-American ear can tell his American accent is flawless. Mm-hmm. And his character has so much um, pathos uh, and is such a wonderful... I mean, I love the build of the uh, of our introduction to their friendship whereby Mark Zuckerberg, or in this case Jesse Eisenberg, is so rude and dismissive and... and um, and, and and unseeing of anybody else and and how rude he is when Andrew Garfield's character is trying to get into the uh, fraternities uh, and it's so brilliantly written that he's cutting without being an outright dick um, yeah. hope I'm allowed to say dick on this but that's yeah. the only word say, for Mark Zuckerberg's dick. character <laughs> um, uh, and so it's absolutely beautiful that Andrew Garfield has this wonderful performance of you can see he's a little bit miffed, but he's still at heart a loyal friend. Yeah. And then when it's juxtaposed with the scenes of, you know, the, the flash forwards, if you will, I suppose, um, of the, the, the case that's going on, you can see how absolutely hurt and sort of bewildered he is by the whole thing. He's yeah. really the heart of that movie. You know, he's so likable and he's such a lovely person that you it hits home, right, when mm-hmm. he has, the, the relationship breaks down and he gets totally screwed over. I watched a supercut of... 
that you know that great shot where he where he realizes that he's been liquidated all of his yeah. she's been liquidated yeah. and he bursts through the doors and he walks and he's screaming you know mark and then he goes and he grabs the computer and smashes it on the ground yeah you can watch a supercut of all of the takes they did of that oh, and oh all wow. of the computers that they destroyed oh really <laughs> yeah he, oh they, they, they must have done that take oh 30 or 40 times <laughs> Because um, do, do you know what David Fincher does? Which one of the things he does? Which well, I know he does 103 his... takes for every blimmin' shot. So he one of the things that he does in his films that means he has to do so many takes is that when a certain character moves, the camera moves. So there's a choreography to it that he needs to get right. Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing is the moment that Andrew Garfield starts moving, the camera moves with him, and the moment he stops, the camera stops. And that takes a great deal of like practice Prepar- yeah, yeah planning and, yeah. and then to add on to that he's trying to see if the performance is right wow so I think that's what one of the reasons why he does so many takes oh because a panic room where he, I think Jodie, Jodie Foster said she did more it was a longer filming period for panic room which took place in one building or set yeah um, than contact which <laughs> you know they filmed in I don't know how many countries but yeah. all around the world and yeah. but did she spend the whole of panic rooms shoot running to the panic room and the camera following her probably she would have got very fit yeah probably <laughs> there's probably like moments like that and yeah. yeah, and the other person who's notable in the social network is Justin Timberlake, and I suppose maybe he's a better analogy for the Sasha Baron Cohen thing yeah. because we're used to seeing him as a pop star. Yeah, and my God, he is marvelous as Sean Parker. I actually think he's probably more charismatic and exciting than the real Sean Parker. Um, <laughs> but JT is extraordinary, and the fact that Mark Zuckerberg sort of falls in love with him, and that's part, you know, not actually romantically, yeah. but, but is beguiled by him, and that's how he, you know, flicks Eduardo to the side, is absolutely convincing. Because in that wonderful scene where they meet um, Sean Parker in the Japanese restaurant, you just, you know, I think I, I texted you guys and went, my goodness, this makes me want an apple teeny. Yeah. Because he's like, what, what are you drinking? Okay, yes, we'll just get apple teenies all round. And, and just his way, you can understand why anyone would be like, yes, I'd like to partner with you in my business. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I actually think the, the other cast members are really, really good as well. Army Hammer is the Winklevoss I twins. love him. He's so good. So good. And I, I forgot that this was one of his first major roles, yeah. right? Because afterwards he... I mean, the Lone Ranger amongst other stuff. <laughs> um, but my goodness, and, and just the special effects going into making him two of him. Yes. Um, seamless. Like, so you know, don't you, that it was his body on one and yes. someone else's body on the other, but they stuck his face, his face on the on other it. body. Like seamless. Amazing. The the overall like visual style of social network, I just, I love so much. Mm. Um a lot of it is is very bleak. It's it's very wintry. Yeah, it's winter in Boston. Um, they also did you guys see all the CGI like breath? Oh, there's a lot of breath effects which make oh, it I didn't, look I, extra I assumed cold. it was real, and I was like, holy mackerel! They've literally put Jesse Eisenberg in shorts, a hoodie, and and slides. <laughs> And they're making him act in a in a cold right. environment. I was very impressed by that, but now I know it's all a lie. I think that it just brings in a great contrast when you do cut to Sean Parker for the first time, mm. and he's in Sunny Berkeley, mm. and it's like ah right, mm. yeah, like it, it really informs a lot about the, the the character as well. But just yeah, the social not like it's it's look. Its soundscape is incredible. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is, was this the first major Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score? Uh, well, at least collaboration with, with David Fincher. Yeah, because yeah, I, so. I, I don't think they'd done much before mm-hmm. this. This and is pre-Zodiac, is it? Oh, Zodiac, no, it's 2000. Po- it's, and did they do Zodiac? I can't it's remember. It's post-Zodiac. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I, that, I don't think they did Zodiac. 
I feel like that's an orchestral score. Right. So it feels like now it's all about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah but but that, that score is just wonderful. And <laughs> just from the first moment of that, that the, the simple piano yeah. sound and then the sort of rising atmospheric <sighs> synth is... Gives me goose, goosebumps just thinking about it. But yeah. do you know what? It's also a fairly yeah. omnipresent score. Like yeah. you could criticise, I'm not going to because I, I absolutely loved it and from everything we've said earlier, that visceral being swept up in the intensity is amazing. Mm. But some might say... You know, take your foot off the pedal, Fincher, mm. because all you're doing is, yeah, we get it, kind of. You know, mm. we're, we've, we're feeling, so we don't need that music the whole time. But holy mackerel, yeah, we do, because <laughs> it's super exciting. It's, uh, it's around the same time that, that um, Daft Punk did the Tron yes. Legacy soundtrack. And, and I loved that film for the this, music yeah. that it made me feel, yeah. not because the film itself was yeah. particularly outstanding. It's pretty and the music's amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and because it is so pretty and the music is so amazing, I actually quite like that movie. Yes, yeah, The story's a bit kind of average. Exactly how I feel. But it's a rise of those electronic... Pops, rock yeah. stars, really. Yeah. Because um, then you have like Junkie XL doing stuff for Mad Max, and um, who was it in uh, Attack the Block? Um, I can't remember, but also amazing score. But yeah, you're right. Just all these electronic artists mm. are heading into like storytelling. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. I was uh, listening to or watching an interview with Atticus Ross and um, Trent Reznor around the Watchmen soundtrack, and they just said. Look, we don't really know. Like, we've never learned this. We just vibe it out, and yeah. and we kind of that's how we come up with a lot of our stuff. Mm. And it's quite exciting to know that they are just really are collaborating and crafting and mm. finding their way with their scores. And it feels so full of oh, emotion yeah. and dynamism. 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 <laughs> Dynamism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I love that. I, I have four moments written down here that particularly jumped out uh, at me for the score. For, yeah, the intro, as you guys said, that piano, like, dum, 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 with a yeah kind of you, you as the audience feel like you're sitting on a bomb like yeah. something's about to go and off and yet all it is yeah, is a guy that? leaving a bar going, going back to his, his dorm, dorm room <laughs> yeah, that's you know but, but but then as he it's so cool that opening shot because you see him go from you know greater boston into the harvard canvas and the soundscape changes right it starts with just a hubbub of conversation and noise it goes to very very quiet street sounds and then once he goes to harvard there's a street performer there's students chatting um it, it just it's like okay so he's entered into another world and mm-hmm. that's kind of the world that he wants to be in mm. um some other scenes when um eduardo receives a phoenix club letter under his door yeah and it's just thumping like it's just it's an envelope yeah. on his door. And it's an envelope with good news. It's yeah. not an envelope that says, pay me $6 million, otherwise your daughter will die. So, yeah. Uh, the site going live, um, where, again, it's just a bunch of nerds sitting yeah. in a room, like, pressing buttons. Yeah, <laughs> pressing a button. Yeah. Isn't it? Like, it's it's what literally it a button. Pressing enter or whatever. <laughs> and, and then, of course, the scene where um, Eduardo storms through Facebook offices, like, mm. oh, my gosh, just... They're great moments, very well filmed, but the music is just, it's the cherry on top that mm. ties everything together. See, that's, and that's what's absolutely missing from The Trial of Chicago 7. Mm. You know, those, there's opportunities in that script for moments mm. of greatness, and they're just not, they're not realised. Which is a shame, because Aaron Sorkin has written a script that deserves 
deserves a much better treatment. Yeah. I tell you something, though, and, and I am a massive fan of social network, and it, maybe it's even in my top ten of all time, eh, but I don't know. Let's see. But um, it's pretty high up there. However, I am always disappointed, the first time most of all, when it ended. Because it feels as though, as though it ends quickly, um, or, or not exactly like a damp squib, but it doesn't give you that ba-boom, mm. and we're at the end. It's suddenly over. And um, there's nothing can be done about it from a historical point of view, because, it, it, it you know, Facebook was going to continue, was going to evolve, and, you know, Eduardo Severin was going to get his payout, and yeah. the... the the um the Voss uh, uh, Winkelvoss the Winkelvoss twins yeah. were going to get their payout yeah. and so on and so forth. But I re- I remember f- every time feeling like, oh this is so great! I wish it would keep going and keep going. Oh okay, oh okay, oh it's over. Okay. Oh, but I mm. love the button. The button of it's so brilliant because yeah. it start. The film starts with. Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara in a in a in the most crowded bar ever filmed. <laughs> yeah. You know they have got people crammed up against yeah. them, and they're having this brilliantly written breakup scene yeah. where he's an absolute dick to mm. her, and she's just wonderful. And that's you know that was her the first time I saw Rooney yeah. Mara, and that's a hint of what was to come. And then it ends with him alone in a sky rise. By himself, he's lost everybody, mm. and he's trying to friend her on Facebook. Mm. It's so devastating. Mm. So I, I, I hear you in terms of maybe the pace of it, but the the bookending of that you're is so, right. so beautiful. And it, yeah. yeah, you're so right. And it, maybe it was more actually. I just wanted it to keep going. Like I really mm. was loving it so hard that I just wanted the story to keep going. Oh, you're right. It's absolutely devastating. And probably this time, in the same way, this viewing, in the same way that I felt more icky about, hang on a second, this is just for rich kids. Um, or it was originally, this is just for mm-hmm. rich, rich kids. This is the time when I felt the most sad for Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Um, and I think he's doing all right. No, but you know, no, he, he was surfing in Hawaii no, last year. Yeah, but guys, and, and he had a girlfriend that he had through that whole period as well. Like he did have another girlfriend, and they're still together. Yeah, they're yeah. married and all. Yeah, but, sure. No, they yeah, are. Yeah. I don't know. No, they are. Oh, good. But no, <laughs> yeah. no, yeah, but guys, I, oh, I mean, I, I think we just have to be super careful of. Um, this whole idea that, oh, but if people are earning heaps of money and are really successful and have all the sort of the trimmings of, of wealth, that that means that they're happy and we don't need to feel sorry for them. I still feel a degree of sympathy for the, the character that he is. The character, okay, I can give The you person that, that I he think is. He's, as a person, I think he's, a, the last 10 years aside, I think he was in a much happier place than the character would suggest. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. Fair enough. And interestingly, just thinking back to the trial of Chicago 7, I can see Sorkin trying to do a similar book ending, right? Because mm-hmm. it starts with people being, young people being drafted. And there is that great shot of the, the male on the ground and the kid reading his draft. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and then it ends with... There the, are some nice flourishes, directorial flourishes. Yeah. But it, yeah, but it... It, it didn't yeah. live up to, I think, the potential of that ending. Yeah. So maybe it would mm-hmm. feel more earned if the opening of that film... Because <laughs> I didn't actually like a lot of the real footage. Not because I didn't care about the real footage, but okay. it felt tonally messy. Right. Um, and, I, and I feel that that opening sequence was... I mean, I was happy. I was much happier with the film when the title came up and we got into the trial. Okay, <laughs> I found the montage poor. I, I thought the montage was okay. Like, I I enjoyed how how basically everything was just 
in such broad strokes. Martin Luther King Jr., dead. You know, Bobby Kennedy, dead. And you don't need to explain. You just know that it happened. Yeah. You don't need to see them on the ground. or yeah. You do kind of. But you just know that it happened. Yeah. And it, it ties into, you know, what's to come. It's like this is chaos. It's, there's energy in the air. There's people dying. This is what the backdrop is, right? But I, I don't know because I'm aware of those those details. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was clear from the film actually what it was the picture it was trying to paint. Right. Like if you don't have that knowledge already, it's mm-hmm. really well. If you do have that knowledge, it's just a bit of a revision, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. This is where we're at. But for a lot of people, I don't. A lot of young people today wouldn't know those events apart from Martin Luther King Jr. That's pretty well known. Yeah. But Bobby Kennedy, I only know about that because I watched the movie Bobby. Um, you know, the Vietnam yeah. War, the, the Vietnam-American War, I should say, and the drafting is, is something that I'm fascinated by, so I've got a really clear sense of that time. Mm-hmm. But um, I wonder, though, so people like my aunt, who's in her mid-70s, she watched it and absolutely loved it because she lived through it. She was working in news at the time, so mm. she lived through the, the situation. So you're right. She's the sort of person who brings her prior knowledge and really appreciates it all. I mean, knows all the character names as real people and so on. I wonder whether th- that it doesn't really matter if you kind of know who Bobby Kennedy is or wasn't and did he you know, die or why or whatever. And maybe it doesn't matter because the the trial is about injustice and that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, it's about seven slash eight people and a dick of a judge. Uh, and so therefore it doesn't matter too much. I hear you. And I, and I, and I, I agree. It's just the way that it's put together, as yeah. we see. It's sort of real footage, jokey footage, horrific footage that's 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 found for yeah. yeah. original. Um, again, it's a direction issue. The um, the interesting thing is, I didn't mention JFK as a possible um, uh, connection film because it isn't written by Aaron Sorkin, but directed by Oliver Stone. And at the very beginning of JFK. I think it's fair to say that we can all assume that if you're going to watch the film JFK, you know it's about John F. Kennedy and you know that it's about his shooting and you mm-hmm. know it's about the conspiracies around his death. But at the very beginning of the film, what Oliver Stone does is chuck out heaps and heaps of archive footage and a voiceover of Martin Sheen bringing us up to speed mm. about Kennedy and the Bay of Pigs and Cuba and blah and blah and blah. It's pretty dry, I've got to tell you. And for me, that film really comes alive and, and I love Love it as a courtroom drama with good old Kevin Costner, who used to be amazing. Um, you know, <laughs> where's he gone? Well, he, he was Superman's dad, right? I mean, that's he, he's that's in a the film where... coming... so he's on Krypton. No, no, he's, <laughs> he's in a film coming out with Diane Lane, um... who, who played Superman's mom, like together oh, again. Oh, that's they did my and Pa Kent. That's right. In the so Snyder my... movies, oh, yeah. So yeah, in yeah. this film, they are a couple who. Um, whose son uh, gets in trouble with some rednecks. It feels a little bit like Fargo season two, to be mm-hmm. honest. And that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time. And it's called Let Him Go. So, since you ask, mm. that's Kevin mm-hmm. uh, and Diane. But anyway, I'm um, just saying, yeah, Jay, um, Oliver Stone does a similar thing. And his movie is flipping two hours, 23 minutes. Mm. And he does a similar thing of, um, no, I lie, it's not as long as that, but whatever, um, of chucking out all that information, blah, 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 before we get into the juice of the picture. Eh, is it necessary? Does it work? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. 
Look out for our next episode in a month's time, which will be our wrap-up of 2020. And it will be a little different than what we've done in the past, because, you know, 2020's been a year. And until then... <laughs> no more mai! <laughs>